delighted to see all of you who were willing to miss Charlie Brown and his Christmas in order to be with us here this evening. Um, I don't know what reward there is for that, but there must be something. And uh, we're glad that you came out tonight to this time together of looking at the book of Acts. How many of you were able to read the book of Acts through today? Would you raise your hand? That's what I thought. (laughs) Well, how about this week? Did you get through it this week, any of you? Oh, there's one hand back there. Good. Two weeks? Would you believe two weeks? (laughs) Thank you. Well, I know this is a busy season, but I hope we never are too busy for this tremendous uh, blessing of reading the Word of God. Uh, it's, it's fine to, to study it in sections, and certainly our time together as a, as a people in church is built around and centered in the Word of God. This is as it should be. But nothing can take the place of your own personal reading of the Scriptures. And no matter how many times you may hear that, I hope you never get weary of, of uh, heeding it, because it's such an important matter that we read the scriptures. They have tremendous power to, to fit us and equip us for every good work. There's so much that's being proposed today of method to enable us to be better Christians. There comes across my desk every week literally pounds, I suppose, of material all designed to fit you and equip you and make you to be a better Christian. And yet the one thing that the, that the uh, scriptures themselves say is designed to do this is oftentimes neglected. Remember uh, Paul's word to Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And then what? Can you say it? That the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Now, what does it? Well, the scriptures. The scriptures interpreted by the Holy Spirit. These two together is all that it takes to equip us to every good work. Now, I have no objection to visual aids and and, uh, scripture uh, and memorization techniques and Bible study booklets and uh, some of these other helps, but uh, they're only helps. They're not the thing that will do it. It's the Word of God and the knowledge and understanding of it by the Holy Spirit that will equip us to every good work. And therefore, let me in this little prologue tonight urge you again to this uh, ministry and this uh, blessing of personal reading of the Scriptures yourselves, both in the family circle and individually as well. Now let's turn to the book of Acts. If uh, the book of Acts were taken out of our New Testament, we'd never be able to understand the rest of it. Uh, To take the book of Acts out of the New Testament uh, would be like uh, a nine-year-old child with his uh, front tooth missing. It's obvious that something is, is gone. Something's missing. When you close the record of the Gospels, you see nothing but a handful of Jews in the city of Jerusalem, the center of Jewish life, talking together about a kingdom for Israel. 
And when you open the book of Romans, the first book beyond the book of Acts, you discover that on a man whom you've never heard of at all in the Gospels, whose name is never mentioned there, is writing to a group of Christians in Rome, of all places, the center of Gentile culture, and he's talking about pushing out to the very ends of the earth. Obviously, something's happened in between. How did this tremendous change take place? What happened that made the gospel burst out of its confines within Judaism and the city of Jerusalem and reach out within one generation's time unto the all the limits of the then known world? Well, it's the book of Acts that tells us. Therefore, Acts is the book that reveals the power of the church. And when a church begins to dwindle and to lose its power and to uh, turn dull and drab in its witness, it needs desperately to get back into the spirit and the expectation and the knowledge and teaching of the book of Acts. Uh, this book was written, as you know, by Luke, the same one who wrote the Gospel of Luke, Paul's beloved companion. And uh, unfortunately, it bears the wrong title. It's called, in almost all the editions of Scripture, the Acts of the Apostles. But as you read the book through, you only find two apostles, in general, mentioned there. The only ones that it, whose acts are referred to are the apostles Peter and Paul. And almost, uh, and all the others are left almost entirely unnoticed. So it hardly deserves the title, the Acts of the Apostles. It is really, probably... Uh, properly titled the Acts of the Holy Spirit or even perhaps the continuing Acts of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you find this suggestion in the introduction to the book as Luke is writing to his friend again Theophilus to whom he addressed his first book he says these words in the first book O Theophilus I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Obviously then, Acts is volume two. Luke is volume one. Acts is volume two. This is a continued story of what Jesus began both to do and to teach. And he goes on, until the day when he was taken up after he had given commandment through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, to them he presented himself alive after his passion by many proofs appearing to them during forty days and speaking of the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he charged them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but before many days you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that's what the book of Acts is all about. The way the Holy Spirit coming into the church, continued that which Jesus began to do and, uh, and uh, carried on the work which was initiated during the days of his incarnation. So that the record of the Gospels is but the story of the beginning of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just the beginning. And when you come to the end of the Gospels, you've only come not to the, not to the end, or even to the beginning of the end, but to the end of the beginning. And when you begin the book of Acts, you are simply beginning volume two in which the Holy Spirit now uh, 
begins to fulfill the designed program of God to carry on his work through the reincarnated body of Jesus Christ. That is, the body of the church. The body by which the Lord intends to reach out to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now that began 1900 years ago. And as you can see, he's still at it today. And we're living now in the age of the Spirit, which was incorporated and begun, inaugurated, by the day of Pentecost, which is the first major event of the book of Acts. Now that's the program. Uh, You can recognize, I'm sure, that the church has, for many centuries now, suffered from a very wrong idea. Much of the weakness of the church is due to the fact that somehow, through the traditions of men that have come in through the centuries, there has come about a very wrong concept within the body of Christ. Christians have met together and have recited the Great Commission and uh, have seen the vision of God and the command of Jesus Christ to take the gospel out to the farthest corners of earth, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, that's the will of God. Uh, No question about it. And as Major Thomas made clear to us in his meetings through this last week, uh, this is one of the favorite tricks of the devil is to is to hold up before Christian people the end that God has in view, the will that he wants to accomplish, and then suggest to them that they go about doing it their own way, trying to fulfill God's will in man's way. And that's what exactly what the church has been doing. The church has gathered itself together and recited the Great Commission, And said to themselves, now it's necessary for us to mobilize all our human resources and to plan the strategy and to see how we can carry out this. And the picture that has often been given is that Christ is waiting up in heaven, earnestly watching to see what's taking place down here and hoping that somebody will get with it and begin to carry out his program. And that the church must somehow get together and plan all the strategy and carry out all the work and try to figure out how best to reach out to the far corners of the earth and to fulfill this expectation of God. You see, that's because we've only listened to one part of the Great Commission. We've heard the first word, go, go. But there's another little two-letter word in there that our Lord gave that we've almost completely forgotten. You know what it is? Lo, I am with you always even unto the end of the age. And it was never the intention of the Lord that the whole job of planning the strategy of reaching out to the ends of the earth and mobilizing the resources and so on should fall upon the Christians. And when the church attempts it on this basis, the Lord always does what he does all through the scriptures. He simply folds his arm and he lets us get go about our busy ways watches us try to fulfill this great commission in our own strength while he just stands by and quietly waits till we get over it. And when exhausted and utterly beaten and discouraged, as we inevitably will be in this process, we come back and cry out before him and say, Oh, Lord, this is we never can get this job done. We can never accomplish this. Then he quietly reminds us, that his program was that the Holy Spirit would come and he would do this task through the church. 
and that he is perfectly able to do it. And the book of Acts is the complete testimony to his ability and his adequacy to carry out the program that he had in mind. Faithful is he who calleth you who also will do it. And it was always God's intention not only to to lay the program before us, but to fulfill it in his own strength. Uh, as you read through this book, you see the ministry of the Holy Spirit. First of all, he's visible in the directing of the activities of the church. Read through the book of Acts and see how many times the Spirit of God takes the initiative to launch some new program in carrying out the uh, some new uh, movement in carrying out the program of God. Remember when Philip was there in Samaria, preaching the gospel, and a great citywide revival was in progress. The whole city was stirred. We read that the Spirit of God said to him, Arise and go down to the desert, down to one man in the desert, and reach him. Now what kind of strategy is that? To leave a citywide campaign where the Spirit of God is moving in power, where multitudes are coming to Christ and leave it all right into the middle of it and go down to the desert to talk to one man. Well, what one man was it? Well, it was the Ethiopian eunuch, a man who was the treasurer of the nation of Ethiopia, the secretary of the treasury there. And he was one to Christ. You remember the story, how the, he was prepared of the Holy Spirit as Philip ran along beside the carriage. He saw him reading the book, and when he asked him what it was, he said, uh, uh, asked him if he understood it. He said, how can I, if a man doesn't explain it to me? And when he came up, he found he was reading right at the right place, Isaiah 53. And beginning at that spot, he began to preach to him Jesus. Because that's always what spirit-led witnessing is. It's the right man in the right place saying the right thing at the right time to the right person. Isn't that it? And this is what he's doing. So that uh, uh, this is the uh, this is the one of the first evidences in this book of the overall directing activity of the Holy Spirit. Then in chapter thirteen, well, in chapter nine, you have him calling a man on the Damascus road and sending another man to him to pray with him, Ananias, who was absolutely astounded by this commission. Why he said, Lord, you don't know who this man is. You don't know what kind of a man he is. He's come here to bind all the Christians and take them to Rome. And you tell me to go pray with him. Why, well, he said, Lord, you don't know what you're asking. And God says, well, he's a chosen vessel unto me. I know who I've called. He's a chosen vessel. And in chapter 13, you find the Holy Spirit saying to the church at Antioch, I want you to separate for me Paul and Barnabas to the work into which I have called them. And later on in the book, Paul says, we tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit said no. And we went, we started to preach the gospel in the province of Asia, but were forbidden of the Holy Ghost. And all through this book, you find that the strategy has all been worked out in advance by the Holy Spirit. And as Christians are available to him, he unfolds the strategy step by step. Now, nobody can plan this kind of a program. There's only the willingness to follow the overall directing activity of the Spirit of God at work in his church. That's the divine strategy. Further on, in this book, you find the Holy Spirit doing that which no man can do, communicating life 
unto those who believe. Wherever the gospel is preached, wherever the word of God is upheld, wherever the good news uh, of the uh, of the work of the Lord Jesus is preached unto men, the Holy Spirit is there to communicate life. And remember how many times through this book he does it before the altar call? Have you ever noticed who gives the altar call in the book of Acts? It's almost invariably the ones being preached to. On the, on the day of Pentecost it was, doesn't it? As the Spirit of God is preaching there through Peter to these thousands gathered on that occasion as they've been brought in by this tremendous miracle of the, of the tongues that break out upon them, the Holy Spirit descending upon them. And Peter stands, begins to preach. He only gets halfway through his message. He only gets about through the second point. And what happened? They were convicted in their heart. And they broke in upon him and they said, Preacher, what must we do to be saved? Now, who gave the altar call there? Well, they did. And when the Philippian jailer is, uh, is impressed by the singing of Paul and Silas at midnight and the earthquake comes and shakes down the prison walls, what, who gives the altar call there? <laughs> well, he does, doesn't he? He comes running in and says to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And all the way through this book, it, uh, it's the Holy Spirit communicating life as men hear the word, and it's imparted to them when they believe. One of the most helpful books to me, uh, verses to me in all the Gospels, is uh, in the 8th chapter of John, the 30th verse. I've read this many, many times, again, to remind myself that it isn't the invitation that makes people come to Christ. It's the truth as it is being proclaimed by the Holy Spirit. In chapter 8 of John, you read this message of Christ as he's speaking to them. He's the light of the world. He reveals himself to them. And verse 30, it says, As he spoke thus, many believed in him while the word was going out. And this is what you find all through the book of Acts. And not only does the Holy Spirit communicate life, just as he does in the home of Cornelius, as Major Thomas reminded us, while the message was going on, God poured out the Holy Spirit upon him. Not only does he do this, but he's also at work throughout this whole book, preserving the purity of the church. There are today groups of people whose sole occupation seems to be to defend the faith, to preserve, if they can, the purity of the church. We had a couple of women who came up to see Major Thomas while he was here last Sunday morning and jumped on him and began to nail him to the wall over this whole matter of uh, defending the faith and trying to drive out those who would uh, uh, disagree or who would have heretical ideas within the church. And this has been the... Uh, intention of many, a perfectly proper intention on their part to try to preserve the purity of the church. But you watch through the book of Acts and you discover that the Holy Spirit himself is at work to do this task. That as the church fulfills its, its uh, commission to be available, to be willing instruments of the activity and life of the Holy Spirit, that he's at work to preserve the purity of the church. You find that amazing incident at the very beginning with Ananias and Sapphira when their hypocrisy is revealed, when they tried to 
uh, attached to themselves a holiness to which, which they did not actually uh, possess. When they tried to appear to be more committed, more dedicated than they actually were, and tried to gain a reputation for, sancti- for sanctity among the Christians by an appearance only, you find the judgment of the Holy Spirit immediately. Now, he doesn't judge that way today, not at least to that extent, because this is a pattern for us to indicate what the Spirit of God does on the spiritual level uh, instead of on the physical level as he did at the beginning in order that we might see how this works. But it's exactly the same. Let somebody uh, begin to use his religious uh, life or his religious standing, his Christian opportunities in order to advance his own sanctity in the eyes of people, to pretend to a holiness he does not possess. And what happened? The Spirit of God cuts him off from the manifestation of the life of Christ. And that life is, is, is at once as powerless and as weak and as fruitless and as dead as far as its effect upon those around as Ananias and Sapphira were, as they lay dead on this on the floor of the of the temple. And then as you read on, you see the Spirit of God preserving in the case of Elymas the sorcerer in the uh, eighth chapter of, of Acts, in the experience of Peter in Samaria. And later on, as uh, he he leads Aquila and Priscilla to take Apollos aside and instruct him further in the truth and thus to maintain the purity of the church. And finally, the major emphasis of this book, and the amazing thing about these Christians, the thing that made them a a constant wonder in the eyes of those around them who heard them preach, the Spirit of God is always throughout this book busy at the work of imparting boldness to Christians. Do you notice that? How bold these Christians were? Here's Peter and John. Uh, who just a few days before were hiding behind locked doors, afraid to go out into the streets of Jerusalem because of the enmity of the Jews against the Lord Jesus. Locking their doors. And now after the Spirit of God comes upon them, they're out in the streets and out in the temple courts boldly proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ. And when they're locked up in prison, The angel releases them and they go right back into the temple courts and pray again and preach again. And you remember once again when they're arrested, they're taken and and the church makes prayer for them. And they gather together and they pray and ask God that he might bless his word and impart to them boldness that they might go out again and preach the gospel right in the same place. In other words, they're saying, Lord, do it again. We got into trouble the last time, but Lord, do it again. And their boldness is simply uh, irresistible. And even those who heard them speak, who were bitter enemies of the gospel, could not resist the boldness with which they proclaimed the truth. Now, what is this? Is this some kind of a magic impartation of some specialized hocus-pocus that makes men bold beyond themselves? No, it comes from a conviction within that what they said was absolutely true. That's what gives people boldness. You let somebody be convinced that what they're talking about is the truth. And they'll be as bold as lions. Because they're, they, they, they can't escape this conviction that what they say cannot be shaken. 
Remember Martin Luther standing before the emperor there at the Diet of Worms. That lone priest standing alone before the assembled might of the entire Catholic Empire with the emperor there and the delegates from the Pope and all these assembled against him. And there stands that one lone man. And he says as he concludes his argument, his defense of himself, here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. What gives him this boldness? <laughs> Why, it's the conviction from the rock by the Holy Spirit that what he's saying is true. Absolute truth. And this is the work of the Spirit all the way through the book of Acts. Now you see, that's, that's God's program, isn't it? God at work. The Holy Spirit doing the whole thing. Energizing, guiding, directing, uh, programming, and empowering, communicating life. He does it all. It isn't up to us to do anything but just to be available, to be his instruments, to go where he will, say what he will. Be ready to open our mouth, be ready to take advantage of the situation wherever it opens. And it's the job of the Spirit, which he never fails to fulfill, to carry out that ministry. Now that's what the church has lacked, isn't it? And that's what you see so much here in the book of Acts. Now, the extent of this program is revealed to us both geographically and chronologically in this book. Notice in chapter 1, verse 8. Here you have the geographic division. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And you can divide the book on that basis. There's a divinely given table of contents of the book of Acts. The first seven chapters gather around this preaching of the uh, being a witness to Christ in Jerusalem. And then at chapter 8 you find a break and the, and the disciples are driven out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. And from chapters 8 to 12 you have the story of that breakout out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. Then beginning with chapter 13, you have the call of Paul and Barnabas to go out to the Gentile world. And that begins the story uh, of the outreach unto the uttermost parts of the earth. That's God's program for the carrying out of the gospel. Now, that's geographically. And it's only in our own day and generation that we see this beginning to be completely fulfilled. The gospel to every corner of the earth. But now in chapter 2... Verse 38, you see the same, uh, verse 39, you see the same program fulfilled chronologically in point of time. Here Peter says, as he is, uh, as the people are arrested by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and they asked him, what must we do to be saved? He says, repent, that is, change your mind, and identify yourself in baptism with the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is given to all who receive Christ, who believe in him. For, he says, this promise is to you, that is to this very generation to which he's preaching, to you and to your children, the next generation, and to all those that are far off down the corridors of time, no matter how many generations may come. In this far-reaching age of grace, the promise is to you, as it was to them, that to everyone who receives the Lord Jesus Christ, the promise of the Holy Spirit will be given. 
to you that are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. Now that's the program of God. And it began, as we'll see in this book, with the completion, first, the first act beyond the ascension of Christ is the completion of the twelve apostles once again. Now, much as I agreed 99% with what our dear brother, Major Thomas, said through those magnificent message brought to us, I must take issue with him on one thing. I can't agree that Matthias was chosen through the energy of the flesh as one of the disciples, and that it was a mistake on the part of man, and that Paul should have been put in its place, that God chose Paul rather than Matthias. I believe that this account makes very clear that Matthias was chosen under the superintendency of the Holy Spirit, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, and that he was put in the right place in the right time. Uh, as we have this account, uh, Peter, remember, standing up, quoted the scriptures, and he said that this was necessary, that the scriptures had predicted that one would be chosen and to take Judas's place. His office, he's, he quoted, let another take. And his conclusion is, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And then, as you know, they put forward uh, two men, just, uh, Joseph called Barsabeth and Matthias. And then through the exercise of a perfectly appropriate method, one which the Old Testament uses again and again to determine the mind of the Lord, the casting of lots, Matthias is chosen. And to indicate that this is indeed the working uh, under the leadership and superintendency of the Holy Spirit, you find that in the very next chapter, chapter 2, it says that on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, verse 14, Peter standing up with the eleven. Peter, one, with the eleven. Twelve altogether. Goes on, lifts up his voice, and addresses the assembled multitude. And that that number, therefore, made a complete number of twelve, is indicated in chapter six, when again, long before yet, Paul is called to be the uh, apostle to the Gentiles, we read in chapter 6 that in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists, that is the Grecian Jews, murmured against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution, and the twelve summoned the body of the disciples. What twelve? By the eleven with Matthias. Matthias chosen to take Judas's place, completing the number of witnesses. And it's upon this twelve, the complete number of the twelve apostles, that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost. Uh, and you remember in the book of Revelation, we're told that the names of the twelve apostles formed the foundations of the city that uh, John saw coming down from heaven. The twelve with Matthias. You see, the Apostle Paul was a special apostle called for the Gentiles. There were twelve apostles to Israel. There had to be twelve. Judas fell, but God chose Matthias to take his place as a witness to Israel. 
But it's Paul who is called to be the witness, the apostle to the Gentiles, primarily. Now, it isn't that the other apostles don't have a ministry to us. They do. But as we saw even in the book of Acts, it was agreed among them that God had chosen that Peter should go unto Israel while Paul went to the Gentiles. Same message to each. But the twelve were specially designed to be a complete, divinely chosen witness unto Israel. And they fulfilled that ministry completely. Now, the great mark of the book of Acts is, of course, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Everything else flows from this, as you find it in chapter 2. And it's interesting to see how through the centuries since this great event, Christians reading about this amazing time when the Spirit of God was poured out upon these 120, who, by the way, were not gathered in an upper room, but were meeting in the courts of the temple, out in a public place where people would see this and the crowd could gather together. How in the world are you going to get the multitude of over 3,000 crammed into an upper room? I've never been able to figure that one out. They met in the upper room for prayer, but they weren't in the upper room when the Holy Spirit was poured out. They were in the temple courts, and there the Spirit of God was poured out upon them. And the interesting thing is to see how Christians reading this event have focused their attention upon the incidentals and neglected the essentials of this great event. What are the incidentals here? Why, the rushing wind and the, and the fire that danced on the heads of the disciples and the tongues by the many languages by which they spoke. These are the incidentals of this story. These are simply the, the peripheral events that took place, the signs that marked something important that was happening. Well, what's the important thing? What's the essential of this story? Well, it was the forming of a new people, the church. 120 individuals met in the temple courts, and they were as, as, as unrelated to each other as any people born in widely scattered parts of the earth might be unrelated to each other today. They had no ties together. They both, they all were individually related to the Lord, but they had no ties to one another. But when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them, he baptized them into one body. They became a living unit. They no longer were related only to the Lord. They were related also to each other. They were tied together into a living uh, organism. An organism which was from then on and still is to be the body of Christ. The means by which he speaks unto the world. By which he is given a flesh and blood existence in our day. That's the new people. And the new power was to be the Holy Spirit indwelling these individual units. And tying them to one another and ministering through them both individually and collectively. To do the work of the gospel. And the new program, as we've already seen, was to reach out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and out unto the uttermost of part, of parts of the earth and down through all the corridors of time from one generation to the next until the coming of Jesus Christ again. Now, those are the essentials. And isn't it strange how we focus on these tiny little incidental things and keep trying to get back to them and neglect these tremendous themes? that the Holy Spirit would impart to us that are so necessary to a vital, active body. 
Well, the rest of the book beyond this, of course, is the calling of Paul, the wise master builder, the one whom the Holy Spirit selected to be a pattern for Christians, for Gentile Christians. And this is why Paul was put through a very intensive training period by the Holy Spirit, during which he was subjected to one of the most rigorous trials that any human being can undergo. He was sent home to his own hometown to live in obscurity for seven years until he learned the great lesson that the Holy Spirit seeks to teach every Christian and without which no one of us can ever be effective for him. What is that? Uh, the lesson that is that Major Thomas brought before us in the words of our Lord, except a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. And as you trace the career of the Apostle Paul, you discover that like every one of us, when he first came to Christ, he didn't understand this. He didn't know this. And as we would have reasoned in his place, he thought that he had all that it took. He was specially prepared to be the kind of an instrument that could be mightily used of God to win, the, win Israel to Christ. And undoubtedly, he said to himself, as he reveals in his letter to the Philippians, that he had the background, he had the training. He was by birth a Hebrew. He was educated in all the uh, law and uh, the, uh, the understanding of the Hebrews. He had the position. He was the, the favorite pupil of the greatest teacher of Israel, Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He understood everything of a Hebrew background. And, uh, and out of this uh, consciousness of his own background and his own training... There, there arose in his heart that, that pulse beat that you find constantly breaking through from time to time in the writings of this mighty man, this hungering to be an instrument to reach Israel for Christ. Remember in the ninth chapter of Romans, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. And he says, I could wish that I myself were cut off from Christ in order to reach my brethren Israel. But God had said to this man, I don't want you to reach Israel. I'm calling you to be the apostle to the Gentiles, to bear my name before kings, and to preach unto the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And you remember how he went out into the desert, and there God taught him. And then he sent him back home to Tarsus. And after he tried in Damascus to preach Christ out of the energy of his own flesh and found it failing, and found at last that he was driven out of the city, let down like a criminal over the wall in a basket, broken-hearted and defeated. He found his way to Jerusalem and thought the apostles at least would take him in, and they turned him aside. And it was only as Barnabas finally interceded for him that he was given any acceptance in the eyes of the apostles at all. And then going into the temple, he met the Lord, and the Lord himself said to him, Go back home. Get out of the city. They won't receive your testimony here. You don't belong here. This isn't the place I've called you to. And there in Tarsus, at last, he faced up to what God was saying to him all the time. That unless he was willing to die to his own ambition to be the apostle to Israel, he could never be the servant of Christ. And when at last he received that commission and took it to heart and said, Lord, anywhere you want, 
anything you want. Anywhere you want to send me, I'm ready to go. God sent Barnabas to him and he took him by the hand and led him down to Antioch, a Gentile church. And there the Apostle Paul began his ministry. Now all of this, you see, is given to us in the book of Acts. If you read through the rest of the book, you see how there's the ever-expanding thrust out to the ends of the earth. And the book ends with Paul in Rome, preaching in his own hired house, uh, in chains, chained day and night to a Roman guard, unable to get out, unable to pursue the uh, evangelizing of the ends of the earth as his heart longed to do, limited, fettered, bound, and yet, as he writes to the Philippians, his heart overflowing with a consciousness that though he was bound, the word of God was not bound. And one of, to me, one of the most amazing words in all the scriptures is given there. As he writes to his friends in Philippi and says, All these things which have happened unto me have happened to advance the gospel. To advance the gospel. They haven't limited anything. They haven't held anything back. Why, these obstacles and these apparent disappointments, they haven't stopped a thing. They've only advanced the gospel. And then he gives two specific ways in which it was happening. Remember? Well, he says one thing is, the boys that are the pick, the cream of the crop in the Roman army who formed the special palace guard of the emperor, the finest boys in the emperor empire are being brought to Christ one by one. The Praetorian Guard is being reached. And of course, you know how it was happening. They were being brought in by the emperor's command and for six hours chained to the Apostle Paul. Talk about a captive audience. What would be better than that? And God was using the emperor to bring his best boys in and chain them to the Apostle for six hours of instruction in the Christian gospel. No wonder Paul writes at the end of the letter, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. And then the second thing he says, is that because I've been arrested, all the other brethren in the city are busy preaching the gospel, and there's more gospel going out in Rome now because I'm in prison than there would be if I were loose. And he said, I rejoice in that. And as I've said from time to time, that always suggests to me, that one of the finest ways to evangelize a community is lock all the preachers up in jail. (laughs) But you remember there's a third thing the apostle couldn't see. A third thing he never dreamed was taking place. We can see it now looking back. We know that the greatest thing that Paul ever did in all his lifetime was not to go about preaching the gospel and planting churches and places to place as he would have thought. But the greatest thing was the writing of letters, which he never would have written if he weren't in prison and had to write them. And because of those letters, the church has been ministered and fed and blessed and strengthened through 20 centuries of Christian life. Now, as you know, the book of Acts is an unfinished book never been completed, just suddenly ends. Luke just comes to the end of where he is at the moment and uh, doesn't even write finish at the end. He just leaves it there and he never gets back to it because, of course, the Holy Spirit intended it to be unfinished because it's still being written. 
The book of Acts is the book of the record of the things which Jesus began both to do and to teach. Is he through yet? No. He's still working, isn't he? Volume 20 is now being written. What's your part in it? When this great book is fully completed and in glory you get to read it, what will be your part in it? Father, we thank you for this this wonderful book, this book that challenges us and blesses us and encourages us and delights us and makes us want to pray and cast ourselves anew upon thy grace and forget all the traditions of men and turn once again to the program and the strategy of God. How we thank thee, Lord, that every bit of it is still as vibrantly true as it ever was and that in this day, in this 20th century day, we can discover anew for ourselves all that this book contains. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.